Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. If I don't know you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And out of the reading of God's word, let's put ourselves in a posture of prayer and reception as to what God has for us in light of what he has spoken for us. Our Father, we are grateful. Lord Jesus, we are humbled. Holy Spirit, we are receptive for what you have to teach us today through your word. May our hearts be moldable. May our minds be eager to learn. In the many spaces that we are formed and shaped, may today in the presence of your people in the name of Jesus, would you form us in powerful ways through the rhythms of the songs that we've sung, through the reading, the public reading of your word, through the preaching of your word, through communion and the Lord's Supper that we, fa- that we have one with another, and even in the sending. In all of these ways, would you make us more like Jesus because we know in that we find our deepest joy. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us first and loving us always. It is in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit we pray these things. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, there's a question um, that really guides every decision that you make almost every minute of every day. In some senses, it's the easiest question in the world to answer. And in another sense, um, we spend our entire lives trying to answer this question. And here it is, and I want you to ask it of yourself. What do I want? What do I want? 
I mean, this question, whether we realize it or not, whether we're honest with ourselves or not, is the question that guides our career choices. Even if it's not necessarily the career you want, maybe the career itself provides something else that, you know, guides you towards what you want. In the same way as that it guides you towards your career choices, it may even decide when you end a particular career, in transition or in retirement. It's the question that guides the spouse that you choose, this, the person who chooses you. It guides the friendships you have. It shapes your calendar. It shapes your budget. And it shapes your goals. And so here's what I want you to do today. I know this may feel a little workshoppy. But I hope that that's um, helpful for you. you I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the little pieces of paper and the, the golf pencils that are there on your seat. You want my golf scores, do you? Oh, man, look out. <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next 30 seconds, and I'm going to give you some prompts along the way. But I want you to answer this question for yourself. Don't overthink it. What do I want? Write it this morning. Not like what I'll want tomorrow. I'm saying like right now. And I'm not trying to communicate an overpresentism or any of that type of stuff. But I want you to just don't over-spiritualize it. Don't overthink it. What do you want? Ask that of yourself. What do I want? This isn't a trap, by the way. You're not like, oh, I'm going to have to turn this in. Do I have to put my initials on the bottom? No, 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 no. This is literally for you. Okay, what do I want? Be honest with yourself for at least 30 seconds. <laughs> And if you can't answer that question, maybe take some time throughout this time this morning to answer it. What do I want? Because if you can't answer that, you'll be tossed to and fro by every whim of desire, directionless, and may even find yourself run aground in the midst of the brokenness of the world. What do I want? It's a central question for you and for me, and it's a question, frankly, that early followers of Jesus also struggled to answer. Hold on to that card. We're going to be addressing and returning to that card throughout our time together. What do I want? Well, we're going to continue this morning through our series in the letter from the half-brother of Jesus, James, okay? And James' main concern is that he might catalyze real faith, not in order that anybody, when they're reading this or processing or, you know, thinking through real faith feels more justified or finally feels like they're good enough or their faith is good enough. No, 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 no. The reason James is so passionate about this is because when we lean into real faith in real ways and we're trusting Jesus in real fabrics of our everyday lives, that's when we actually begin to experience real joy. If you have counterfeit faith, you'll never know real joy and then the whole aspect of faith in Christ will feel like a sham. So real faith is the avenue to real joy. And as we've seen throughout this letter, everything that intersects with real faith experiences a level of transformation and change. And the same is true to our deepest desires and wants. Actually, what we come to see is that when faith engages our wants, it shapes them in pretty dramatic ways. And here's what we're going to discern or discover today is that real faith wants what God wants. Real faith wants what God wants. Wants. Now, I know that leads to a whole host of questions like, well, how do I know what God wants? <laughs> and then secondarily, what if God wants something that's against what I want? And then why in the world should I cave to what he wants versus what I want? Great questions. I'm so glad you asked them. And the short and long of it is, is if God is who he says he is, when God's wants for your life are realized and you collaborate with him in that way, that's where you find your deepest desires fulfilled. 
You follow? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to, with that little handy-dandy card, you're going to be a participant in our journey together through this brilliant text. And we're going to look at why we want what we want. We're going to do a bit of dissection there. That's an important question we rarely ask, why we want what we want, how to pursue the best for yourself, and what difference your life takes when you want God's best in your life. Sound good? So if you're a note-taker, those things we're going to be processing through, those are the three steps. I know it sounds like really workshoppy now, um, but that card's going to be a helpful process to make this real for you personally. Okay, so first, let's look at why you want what you want. Why you want what you want. Now, I don't know the last time, if ever, you've asked, like, why do I want the things I want in life? Like, for example, I'm going to give you a couple examples. Sometimes we want a promotion. Well, why do you want that promotion? Do you want that promotion because it's going to provide status and then finally those who are most important in your life, maybe your parents who had unrealistic expectations of you, maybe key friends or relationships where people are constantly saying you better be better if you're going to finally be accepted. If you get that promotion, you finally think I'm going to be accepted or maybe it's your own standards you put on yourself that finally if I can reach that, then I'll feel okay with me. Why do you want that promotion? Maybe for some of you it has to do with why you correct your children or why you hope your children actually rather, why you hope your children behave better than they do or your parents behave better than they do. Because you have this friend who has really, these parents and their relationship tends to be always so great and glowing or you have this friend who has these kids that always seem to be so great and glowing and you want your kids or your parents to finally be better so that you can finally feel like you can one-up that other person. Why do you want your parents your kids to start acting better, to being better. Or maybe, just maybe, why do you want friends, right? Sometimes we move to a new city, different stages in life. We have this deep hunger for new friendships or deepening friendships. Is the reason you want a friend is so that you can finally have someone who's constantly affirming you, kind of like a self-affirmation bot. And that's all you want from them, except for when you need help moving your fridge, right? Like, why... Do you want friends? Have you asked those questions? Like, why is it that you want what you want? And maybe even just maybe, like, why now? If this was a desire that was dormant but now feels alive, what in your life has changed that now you have this burning desire? This is an important question in our lives. If we're to ever process, indeed, what is best for us. And when we come to James... We find an important part to this process and this question that is very humbling in the answer that we give to that question and discerning why we want what we want. You see, what James wants us to know is that in all the various aspects of the matrix of our decision-making, we don't just want what we want. I'm going to say that again. We don't want just what we want. Someone else is always informing, always informing our wants. And herein lies the danger as to who that someone is. Because what we see in James in the passage that was just read for us is that God's enemy wants to shape our wants without us knowing it. God's enemy wants to shape your wants, and this is really important, without you even knowing it. You see, we come into James chapter 4, and if you haven't turned there already, I'd encourage you to do so. We find a community, right, that's 
they're quarreling. That's always a tough word to say for me for some reason, quarreling. And they're warring one with another, and they have these desires. And part of the reason why they're fighting so much is they're chasing their wants at the expense of someone else. And they have these wants that are not only warring within them, but a warring among them as to whose wants actually gets met. And what James is saying is you have these desires that are warring within you that are fighting wants against one another. It uses the language of passions here in the ESV. Some use the language of desires. These wants. But in the midst of all these wants, they're not wanting alone. If you go actually up to James chapter 3, verse 15, we see what? That this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. And then he uses the word demonic, which is like, hey, James, you overstatement much. And he's like, no, 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 no. And then we get down to James chapter 4, verse 7, and in the litany of responses that we are to have to these militaristic desires, he says what? Resist the devil. He's bringing in a whole framework to our wants that we often ignore. Wait, wait, wait. My wants are my wants. They're what I want. They're what I need. And you know what? What I want is what I want. Wait a second. Is it? You see, as followers of Jesus, when we look across the biblical narrative, we find a much bigger world than we often live in. And by that, I mean we often live our lives as if we are the sovereign maker of our decisions, the mover of our everyday lives, and all that is is what I see, touch, taste, smell, and so on. But the reality is the biblical narrative paints a picture where there is a creator God who is over, even though we cannot see, and sometimes we live as though he doesn't exist. He is the one who holds all things together. When he spoke, all of creation came into being, and he's moving and he's working throughout the history of the world and even in our lives individually. But he's not the only actor. He is the original actor and the only original actor, but there is another one, the enemy of God and against God's purposes. The devil here, or the leader of the demonic, and his primary goal is to destroy, to unravel, to bring chaos to God's good world. The way that Jesus talks about this evil one is pretty astounding throughout the gospel accounts. His destructive, his pathway, his tactic for destruction, it's usually not explicit. You know, I, I know this feels a little silly, but it's like, of course, it's not the guy with the, you know, the, the horns and the pitchfork, right? And yet, even though I can guarantee if I had conversations with all of you and you'd be like, well, of course, it's not that guy, you know, of course, it's more subtle than that. The reality is we don't pay attention. We don't have our eyes open to just how subtle the evil one is. He's not as explicit. Often, he finds himself much more happy to be hidden. And his pathway of destruction is way more subtle after he, when he goes after our wants. It's ingenious, really. And one specific space that Jesus talks about, the evil one, the devil, Satan, or the Satan, the adversary, is in John chapter 8, verse 44. And what he calls the devil is the father of lies. That's his avenue. That is his means. And his end is right there from the beginning. His goal is murder. <laughs> he was a murderer from the beginning. And the way he brings about this destruction, the very snuffing out of life in a very drastic and disastrous way is through the lies that come to you and to me. He whispers these lies 
into the deepest insecurities of humanity. And sometimes they take on a societal form. They're broader beliefs and structures. You could look at Jim Crow in the South and how this lie that those who had a different color of skin were subhuman and required separation from those who had a lighter pigment of skin. And these lies can bring about extraordinary destruction for generations and actually mal-shaping the way in which we see one another. But another way these lies meet us is in the depths of our hearts and the deepest insecurities of who we are as individuals. Lies that say things in the depths that we don't even dare to say out loud, but we ruminate over or we actually live into is, you know what? I never succeed in anything, so I'm going to just stop trying. Well, why is that? Because you know what? I'm just not good enough. Well, why are you not good enough? You know what? Because if somebody really knew the real me, they'd never stay with me. I'm not lovable. Slowly, we get all the way down. And we look back on our lives, and we incessantly return to this framework that I'm just an idiot. I'm unlovable. That's why people let me down. That's why people walk out. There's just no, if they knew the real me, they'd never stay. And that's the lies that the evil one has been working into humanity from the very beginning. If you were to turn back to Genesis, the very first book, first book in the Bible, the word Genesis literally means beginnings. And in Genesis Three, after God had made not just a good world, but a very good world, and he's enjoying his creation, and his creation is enjoying him, we see the evil one slither up in Genesis chapter 3, and how does he meet the first woman made? But he first says, aren't you allowed to eat of any tree? She goes, wait, 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 I'm, a, I mean, I'm allowed to eat of all of this. Have you seen all of this? Except for that one, that one tree. If I eat of that one, I'm going to die. And he goes, that one? You won't die a lie right out the gate. And it's so confident. Listen, when somebody lies really confidently, what's your first thought? Like, oh, wait, 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 is that true? You know, like, when somebody has such a stance of deception, when their core is bent towards your destruction and has no hope for your wholeness, but they can with such confidence lie to you right to your face or lie to a whole nation, it makes your very foundation of what is true shake and start to reassess. And Satan, he met Eve with this strong, confident lie. Braggadocious. Full of all sorts of sense of who he ought to be and be seen by. And he wants Eve to start to doubt what is actually true. And then he moves on and he says... You know, if you eat that, you'll actually be more like God. Isn't that what you want? And you can almost begin to process and see Eve's reasoning because it's our own. It's like, well, wait a second. If God loved me, why would he hold this back from me? I thought he does want to be with me. He's been walking with us in the cool of the garden. Is there something that's inadequate about me? Maybe that's why God's holding back this really good thing from me because he's just, ultimately, he doesn't love me. He doesn't, he knows that my liminality and he knows that he'll never have the intimacy he really wants is because I'm some par. So maybe, just maybe I do need to eat the fruit because then I'll be good enough for him. Or maybe, just maybe I'll eat the fruit and I'll show him that I am good enough. Finally, I'll, t and slowly the process out of these deep insecurities that God doesn't love her that God has lied to her, that he's hiding some of the best from her, become the very foundation for her to finally reach out and eat.
And it cultivates what? Her desire. She begins to see the fruit differently. That it'll make her wise. That it's delicious. And slowly the lies of the evil one begin to cultivate these destructive desires and wants that ultimately do lead to our own demise and the broader repercussions of destruction and death. These lies, if they are left unchallenged, they will suck the very life out of you. And they become like a poison that first intoxicate our wants, but then they spew out in in these actions of rage and destruction towards those around us. And we'll feel fully justified in it, you see. The evil one, he knows. All he has to do is get to your wants, and all he has to do to get to your wants is to tell you a really good lie and to keep it hidden. Because listen, everybody seeks and everybody finds what they seek. And if he can just cultivate your wants, then if if we really want something, oh, we will justify it until the cows come home. And if we find it justifiable, you better believe that our lives will finally embody it. If he gets the lie down deep enough, he just has to wind us up like a toy and then we spin out destruction all on our own. That's his tactic. That's what he's after. And he knows there are certain wants that if we pursue them and even certain needs that are true, but avenues to pursuing the fulfillment of those needs, that if we go down that path, it will leave us in alienation from others and God. Sure, we will find what we have sought, but we will find that we are indeed alone. And in that, we may have everything we thought we wanted except for life. What does it profit a person who what? Forfeits their soul but gains the world. You may indeed find that you gain the world, but you've lost everything of who you are in the process. And the evil one, oh, listen, listen. He doesn't want us to be thinking about him because, listen, a a lie is much harder to to detect if the very idea of a liar feels unbelievable. If it's just me and this is my want that's coming from within me, then of course I need to pursue it and shake it out, right? But if there's someone else, something else outside of me who's literally pursuing my destruction, seeking to shape my wants, I come with greater humility, greater honesty, and a little more suspicion even of my own wants and where they're coming from. So I want to ask this question of you. Do you know why you want what you want? Look back on that little piece of paper. Who's behind those preferences, those desires, those goals? Because there's only two scripts in the world. Not a doctor script, but a playwright. (laughs) There's either God's script that says, hey, this is the ways in which the play ends in beauty. Or there's another script And the evil one is writing it clearly, and it seems compelling, but it'll lead to destruction. Do you know why you want what you want? How how willing are you to hold those wants loosely? That might be a sign. What lies are you believing? Lies around inadequacy that are fueling that want? Lies around 
the unlovable nature of who you are because of who you are? You know what hell is? C.S. Lewis and his great divorce, I think, gave us a really great picture in pulling together a lot of the themes and the metaphors of Scripture. In the great divorce, he describes hell as a place where everybody gets what they want, but they just move further and further out. Where they find themselves isolated from each other and from God, and they become the shadow of who they once were. There is, in the end, and I think Lewis is right on here, there comes a moment where God either expects us to say to him, thy will be done, or he looks at us and he says to us, thy will be done. But there is only will, one will that is done in his kingdom forever that pursues our good, and it's his. Do you know why you want what you want? It's not just you. To do that is to be blind to the biblical narrative and those who are actually informing and shaping you into the very wants you want. And I, and I think this is difficult. I was... I was at a conference this past week, um, Monday through Wednesday, um, for the Center for Pastor Theologians, talking through the issues of confronting racial injustice and the theological framework, walking through the prophets and the dynamics of the biblical narrative, as well as understanding deep sociology and the dynamics of the history in which we find ourselves, knowing why we find ourselves where we are. We didn't just show up like this, but what are the dynamics at play? Really thoughtful folks seeking to follow Jesus and wrestle through this. And pastor, well actually the reverend doctor, Pastor Charlie Dates, was preaching through Amos chapter 5. When God's talking to the nation of Israel, and they're doing everything, I mean, in some senses, right. They've got glorious sacrifices. They're following the Old Testament codes brilliantly on the kinds of worship they're bringing to the temple. They've got the right amount of meat. They're bringing like the best of the best sheep. They're saying the right words, but they completely ignore the weak and the vulnerable in their community and they grind them down. And you know what God says? I'm tired of your worship. I don't want any of it. If you are just completely overlooking those that you are causing injustice to, all of this is worthless. You can't worship your way out of this. You got to open your eyes to those who are made in the image of God around you. And Charlie Dates, he was preaching, and I was like, oh, my heart was like melting. I'm moving. And listen, I'm going to give you a little window behind like the pastor world. Like there was a moment where I was like, oh, I want to preach like that. I want to preach that message. I want, I want to be in, in what God is doing in the world. And then I kind of, kind of slammed on the brakes, and I said, well, why do I want that? <laughs> Just thinking about what I'm about to be preaching. And here, what you got to know about me is like if, is it, if it isn't real in my life, then I'm not going to preach it, Okay. If I'm not wrestling with it in my own heart, um, I don't have the stomach to do that. Um, and so I was just processing, like, why do I really want to preach like the Reverend Dr. Pastor Charlie Dates? And I started writing down these things, and I said, do I want, do I want to preach like that so that I can get a reaction? Or do I want to preach like that so that I might see transformation? Do I want to preach like that so that people can say, well, Gabe's a really great preacher, or do I want to preach like that and that message so that people might see an amazing God? Do I want to preach like that and see more people come to know Jesus and our church grow so that people can say, Gabe's a really great pastor, or do I want to preach like that so that people might say, what an extraordinary God? And it was scary because in the midst of that, I started to feel my own insecurities 
messages I'd heard growing up and living and life and just whether it be from people within family or outside of family or just the dynamics of growing up in a broken world. And I kept thinking, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. The only way I'll be good enough is if I'm like pastor dates. And it's not bad to have good models in your life, but it kind of terrified me a little bit <laughs> as to what it is was, that was actually driving me in that moment. Because the evil one, some of those lies, they can take really good ends but guide you down destructive means. They can take you down really good means but towards destructive ends. It's this deep intimacy of allowing the Spirit of God to work on you even on the motivations as to behind what you're doing. And I began to see what we see here in James chapter 3, verse 14, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It was hiding in the shadows of my own heart and felt the need to engage in some surrender afresh. And this shows up, this, this kind of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, it shows up everywhere. I mean, it, I'll give you another example. It's like when, I, when I'm parenting my kids, Ava, Israel, and Zion, sometimes I can correct them too harshly. You know, there's a point where you stop some kid from running into the streets so they don't get demolished by a car. But then there's another sense where you overcorrect. You're like, what were you thinking? You know, and suddenly, like, I'm over-responding. What's at the heart of that? I can tell myself till I'm blue in the face. It's just because I want their best. But in another sense, what I'm doing is because if I don't feel like I'm a good enough dad because I'm not a good enough person, every time my kids screw up, I feel like it's an affront to who I am as a person rather than their growth. And so instead of correct, I overcorrect and I yell and I get harsh. And this type of stuff, it shows up everywhere, doesn't it? These subtle lies where we're ultimately always going back to, am I good enough? Am I lovable? Because surely nobody will love me for me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look back at your paper. Do you know why you want what you want? When you answer that question, what do I want? What were the motivating factors there? What lies have creeped in that maybe are the catalyst or the motivation for that want? Hopefully we have a healthy skepticism of even our own wants doing a broader assessment of what's motivating us or who's informing and shaping us in ways that we may not even realize. And that leads me to the next part, how to want the best for yourself, right? <laughs> how do we do this? Because listen, there's lots of ways to destroy our lives, lots, whole lots. There are lots of ways to actually have good needs met in subpar ways that bring destruction to others. But James wants us to know, in his proverbial way, throughout the letter of James, he's much like the book of Proverbs in the wisdom literature of old, and that it's less like a steak that you want to bite into and more like a Jolly Rancher you need to suck on for a little while to really see. Like, that's why sometimes it's hard to just walk through a text because he's, like, pulling all these things together and he's going cyclical. Do you like that? I was trying to be something. Um, he's kind of working through, and you're like, James, I thought you already talked about this. Well, how does this fit, you know? It's because he's bringing in the wisdom literature and framework of the way of wisdom. And he's like, listen, there's only one way, ultimately, to pursue your best. And it's this, submit your wants to God. And now, to be clear, I don't mean like a comment card. 
um, or like a wish list to Santa Claus Jesus. It's, um, we see in James chapter 4, verse 7, submit ourselves to him. That's the language of saying he's the king and I'm a part of his kingdom. I don't reign over that kingdom, but he's the one who designed life. He actually knows my life intimately. He knows my best better than I do. And so I'm going to lay what I think I want before him. And he has the opportunity to affirm, to fan into flame, to shut down or call us to actually relinquish that altogether because he wants our good. And no wonder James goes then to humility in this passage because Lord knows that the thing that we're most confident about is the things that we want. Because surely if I just had that, then I would be okay. Surely I don't have this now, but I'm going to work towards it. As soon as I get there, I'm going to be fine. And we won't believe celebrities. We hear it all the time. You know, celebrities will say, listen, I thought I'd finally get my acceptance and my fulfillment when I got to the top. I got to the top and it was the same as everywhere else. Again and again. And yet we think we're different. It takes humility. It also takes taking your wants really seriously. More serious than most people, frankly. And saying, what's at the heart of these? And instead of, James says something interesting. He says, stop your laughing and turn to mourning. It's like, oh, James, come to my party, buddy. Um, <laughs> No, but what this language of laughter was often a mocking at brokenness and sin in life throughout the wisdom literature. And James is like, stop laughing about what you've built your life on and, this, and these absurd foundations and the way that you continue to cycle through destruction and actually turn to mourning and confession, meaning owning, hey, I was believing some lies and then repentance, which is actually turning towards the truth in life. And say, God, I I'm actually going to submit all of these wants to you. And then what does he even say? Resist the devil, right? Because these lies that the devil has been trying to whisper deep within our hearts that then inform our wants and draw near to God. It's there in the intimacy with him that we find our deepest desires being met. And I know that that's a tall order, especially when we're so confident of our wants. We may even have Bible verses to back them up. But the timing and the placement of those wants being fulfilled are often areas of deep wrestling. But why should we submit our wants to God? Because God doesn't just want you to have the best. He wants you. Look with me again at James chapter 4, verse 5. What an important verse. He says... He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. He doesn't say he yearns jealously for all the things you owe him. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in. He, he wants you. Unless we forget, God gave his best that he might pursue our best. God, out of his great love, created the world. So before we even get to redemption, the very reason you sit in a chair and you're breathing breath is because out of God's great love, he created creation. And what did he say? He actually created it not just fine and decent and a little hunky-dory. No, no, no. Good and very good. And that's where he put us. And it was our decisions and our sin and our brokenness and the evil one and his sabotage of God's creation that ultimately sought to bring and brought about these thorns, these thistles, and this death and this pain. 
But God, because of his great love, didn't give up on us. He constantly was pursuing us, even though we were running from him, even while we were yet sinners, even when we're enemies. That's when God sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus and the Father collaborated together. It's not like Jesus is like, whatever you want, Father. He's like, no, like they work together in collaborating by the power of the Spirit, the triune God for our good, such that Jesus went to the cross and he gave his very life and gave up. And surrendered himself to the Father in our place to pay our penalty and our death. And all of evil would be sucked into him. That he would now open up the floodgates of life and life abundant. The best that God had originally designed the world for. God would go through all of that. Such that on the third day when he rose again. He wasn't like, all right, listen. I mean, I came. You killed me. I'm out. No. He actually went and chased down the apostles that abandoned him. And then what does he say? Peter, the one who like rejects him the most. Actually, interestingly enough, this is important. Some people might think like, well, the devil don't got no hold on me. I'm a follower of Jesus. Look at Peter. Right after Peter says, when Jesus is like, who, who do people say that I am? Peter's like, oh, you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus is like, well done, Peter. That didn't come from you. That came from the spirit of God working through you. And he's like, now I'm going to go die. And Peter's like, no way, man. No, you're not. Uh-uh. You're the Messiah. You. Yeah, I'll protect you, right? And then what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me what? Satan. Peter had a framework of what the Messiah was meant to do and how he was to meet his needs. And Jesus says, you're wanting what the evil one wants. You're being influenced. You're going against the very purposes of God that he has for me for the world. And you can't see it. You think you know what's best, but I know what's best. And it's going to cost me everything, Peter. And you got to let me go there. So get out of the way. And sometimes that's us. God wants to give us his best. And it looks like a framework that doesn't make sense to us in that time and in that space. And when we try to be an obstacle to God's purposes in our life, wake up. Because it isn't just you that wants that but someone else might be forming those desires and shaping them. Is it really worth it? It cost him his life. Why wouldn't it cost me that too? That's exactly a great question. If he gave us everything and we're still living and breathing here, it's a good reminder of God's heart for us such that he wouldn't even stop at death. You know, earlier this week, um, I had a meeting, and I asked for permission. So some of you, sometimes pastors, overshare. This is not the case, okay? Um, just want to head that off at the pass. But Steve Lewis and I met together for coffee um, just to kind of spend some catch-up time. Steve, um, I know it's Alcoholics Anonymous, but he's the one non-anonymous member of Alcoholics Anonymous here who leads on Friday nights, the group that meets here. And Steve and I met together to kind of catch up on life and process um, what's going on and and a crisis had hit his life. Once again, I asked him for this. So, and he wants to encourage you even with his story. And I just thought it was beautiful. A crisis came into his life. And he told me, he's like, Gabe, I've been sober for seven years. This crisis was so big. I knew everybody in AA, everybody who knew me would say, you know what, Steve? You get a, you get a free drinking ticket right now. This is hard. Everybody would have understood if I'd have picked up the bottle again. Everybody would have understood it. Nobody would have stood in judgment. They'd have been like, well, of course, Steve, we get it. We know why you relapsed. He said the temptation to go back into these avenues of destruction and addiction were so strong. But he said, right there in that space, while I was processing this, 
And he's like, I, I hesitate to tell this to a lot of people because most people won't believe me, but I know you will. And I said, okay, this is good. And he said, right in that space, it, like, it wasn't in my ears. It felt like it was coming from the top of my head somewhere. I just heard God say, if you don't drink, I'll take care of you. And some of you may feel like that's religious mumbo-jumbo. Others of you who've had intimate relationships with the Lord, intimate walks with the Lord, understand that God can and does work in those ways. And he goes, in that moment, I just knew that God had me. When the temptation was the strongest, and it doesn't always work that way, but in that space, and you know what we started to talk about out of the crisis was now with some of this more margin that he has, how is he going to leverage that to care for others? And that's what God does in those spaces. When he's pursuing our best, he actually gets his, our eyes off of us and usually on we. That's a massive movement of wholeness and health is that even in crisis, sure, we experience that crisis, but quickly through the work of the Spirit, we start focusing on how God might be working to actually leverage this for the care of others. And so we started thinking through ways to be caring for more. And I think this is what James gets at. When we're designing or, or wrestling through, not designing, but kind of working through our wants, when God is at work in us, he starts moving us from me to we. When I think about what I want, it's not consumed and unrelentant and unrepentant of my own desires being met when I want them to or I'm out. Instead, it's a space and posture of humility and care for others. So I want you to flip over that card. So we're returning to that card. You've wrote down what you want, why you think you want it, been processing that. Now I want you to actually flip it over because I think this is the movement we see taking shape, even here in James's passage, especially here in James's passage. We go from asking, what do I want, to what do I think God wants for us? When you think about this church, what do you think God wants for us? When you think about our city, Kansas City, when you think about your workplace, when you think about your loft building or your community of homes, what do you think God wants for us? It's a slightly different framing. And what a place to start. Rather than centralizing your wants, you centralize the communal's flourishing. Hmm? And that's when the best starts to show up. And that's, to be clear, this is more than just reorienting your wants. It's understanding that God's purposes are bigger than you, but they also include you. That's the best. Such that when you think about a church community, you don't just show up and extract what you can to get what you want, but you show up and you actually engage and give back because you understand the mutual dynamics. And when you volunteer, you follow through and you're consistent. If you say you're going to do it once a month, you do it once a month, even when it actually causes you to sacrifice some of your wants. I know you wanted to take this trip, but you promised to be there. You know, um, this is pastor talk a little bit, <laughs> real church talk. Sometimes we have to sacrifice our wants for the good of the community. When you think about the broader educational system in our city. And if you have kids or you're a teacher, you're not just concerned about getting a good teaching job or an administrative role or that your kids get in that best school system, but that there are enough good education seats for all the kids in our city. When you think about your workspace, it's not just about getting that promotion to elevate your status and increase your bank account so you don't have to ask for help like your parents had to ask for help. No, 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 no. Instead, Maybe you actually encourage someone else to take that promotion because you recognize they would be better at that role and you would enjoy supporting them. Doesn't that feel counterintuitive to like everything we hear everywhere else? 
what do you think God wants for us? It's a different question all together. And you know what's different about your life when you want God's best? Instead of constantly comparing yourself to others, instead of constantly raging or just putting your wants at the center of your goals, no matter who you have to trample or no matter how you have to sideline or no matter how, do you, no matter how you have to just be slightly deceptive to get there. Instead, what we find is that when we want what God wants for us, we become meek. Meek. Meek sounds weak, doesn't it? <laughs> it even rhymes. You've got a great little poem right there before you. I've got the first two lines. Congratulations. Your A-B structure is rolling. So, so in the midst of that, where do we see this? Right there in James chapter 3, verse 13. You want to know you got God's wisdom? The fruit of that is meekness, gentleness. Now, that doesn't mean like Midwestern niceness where you never have real talk with anybody. I'm not saying that. But you constantly flex, you bend, you listen, you may even sacrifice for those that are around you. Why? Because if a God who gave his best loves you and wants to be with you such that he'll pursue his best, even when it's not fitting your timeline perfectly, you're not willing to trample over others or to escalate the energy such that it becomes a hot space where rage is bubbling. Instead, you're able to step into that with gentleness, knowing that God is actually working for your good, and he wants you to be a channel of that goodness for us, not just me. That's the fruit of it. Meekness. Is that what defines your life right now? Meekness. At work with coworkers, meekness. With your boss, meekness. With your employees, meekness. With your students, meekness. With your parents, meekness. With your children, meekness. With your friends, meekness. In your community group, meekness. When gossip starts to starts to build up because you know when all this destructive actions start coming, are you ready to rage? Or are you acting in meekness? Because in those spaces, maybe just like Steve, when you have all these deep wants, you can rest in the fact that God is saying over you, whether explicitly or within the biblical text, if you'll trust my promises, I'll take care of you. It doesn't mean you don't have work to do. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But I've got you. And it's going to take longer to get there, like all good things, <laughs> but I've got your best in mind. Let's let him work in that way, will we? Because the reward is great. And it's just a better and more life-giving avenue of being. May we hear God's word. May we receive it by the power of the Spirit. And may we live it as his community for our best in his glory. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you have spoken, that you are working in this place. Thank you for the wisdom of James and how your spirit guided him in that time, in that place, for that people, and also for all followers of Jesus throughout all time. God, we come with our wants, not always able to discern what it is, one, that we want, or two, the source of that want, or the validation of those wants. We know that real faith wants what you want because that's where the best good is for us and for those around us. 
Help us to submit our wants to you, Lord Jesus. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to love what you love and so experience the joy that only you bring and the intimacy that comes with drawing near to you and resisting the devil. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. So here's what we're going to do.